wow, you missed a really good opening. So let's do a short, short summary opening of the opening uh, as we as we go start. Uh, there's some heavy stuff today. So if you listen to this and you want to dip out when you hear the question, come back in a few minutes. I totally get it. Uh, enjoy Halloween if that's your thing. It's not my thing. Um, I hope you like it. I hope you're happy. I hope you're doing okay. Let's get started. All right. Just remember what I've taught you. I can't believe I didn't have the microphone on. All right. So now that the microphone's on and, and now that we're here and now that everything's going, hi, I'm John. Uh, it's my job, passion and pleasure to help you write better. I hope you're good. I hope you're doing well. And this is the writer's chat for Halloween, the 31st of October. Um, shall we do a proper opening? Let's do a proper opening. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, enthusiasts, candy likers, anybody who can appreciate good fishnets, anybody who's got really cool boots, people who like coleslaw, people who can appreciate an apple, anybody who's ever wondered how they managed to get out of bed today because there's just 10 million things they haven't gone right. Um, anybody who's ever had an experience where saying something like, how are you today has prompted a fight. Anybody who's, uh, ever discovered five extra dollars in their pants pocket. People who realize they didn't have to work nearly as hard as they thought they did in order to get something done. Anybody who's ever really appreciated a surprise or a kind message from someone just out of the blue randomly. And most importantly, the comrades. Here we go. This is the writer's chat. And if you have no idea what this is, if this is the first time you're checking this out, first of all, welcome. Thanks for being a part of this. Um, if you are watching this on Twitch, please remember that following is free. I should point that out. And that if you have an Amazon Prime subscription uh, and you, you just can give away a free one as an Amazon Prime person, I'd be more than happy to benefit from your sweet subscription that allows you to see this without ads or anything. I will also point out that I have recently tweaked the ad settings, so hopefully they won't. Uh, you'll get a little notification saying an ad is coming, and then the ads won't be too too intrusive, hopefully. If they are, let me know, and we'll fix them again because that's apparently a thing I can do for sure. Anyway, uh, the writer's chat is where you can get a baker's dozen worth of answers to the questions you have about writing, editing, marketing, publishing, buying, selling, or doing anything with whatever book or stuff you're making. Uh, I'll answer those questions plus the answers for questions from those people in chat. Hi, chat. It's good to see you. And if you're watching this on YouTube after the fact, hello, um, you feel free to leave your questions down in the, the comments below. And also, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to do all the youtube -y things like like and subscribe and click the bell for notifications so that, I don't know, so that 
Mr. Beast is less of an asshole for 10 seconds. I don't know how that works. But if you do those things, um, good things happen. Something, something, internet stuff. Anyway, shall we just get on to our questions for the day? Ready to get started? Now that the microphone is on and working and I'm talking into the right end of it, here we go. Question number one. Do I change how I market based on when in the writing process I start marketing? So there is a school of thought that says it's, you know, dependent, that you don't start marketing until you're done the book. That's one school of thought. That's a pretty common one, and most people tend to do it that way because they've got all their eggs in the basket of I'm making the book. Nothing wrong with that at all. There is a school of thought that says, as I'm in the middle of writing the book, I can do some kind of marketing. I can talk about the book that's coming out. I can get people signed up for a newsletter. I can get people ready for a pre-sale. I can do some marketing while I'm writing. And the things I can talk about in terms of that marketing is the fact that I'm making this book. I can talk about how the sausage gets made. There is another school of thought that says... Even when you just get started, even when you're like, I have an idea for a book. Good news, everyone. I, I do have that clip. I should play that. Um, when, you, when you do have that uh, moment of inspiration and you're just getting started and you're just starting to outline or you're just starting to sketch out your idea, that you can also market there, but you're going to market there more on enthusiasm and the rough potential of your idea versus something more concrete as you would when you're later down in the process. One of these strategies isn't better than the other. They're more common as you get further along into the writing process. When the writing process is done, it's more common to market, to go from like write a book, full stop, start marketing from what feels like zero. Sure, that's a thing. That, that works. But it's by no means the only thing to do. And I, for clients, often advocate doing a little bit of marketing as you're writing. It's not going to be the same amount or the same type of marketing that you will when the book is done. But the sooner you as a writer can get in the habit of explaining like what you're talking about and how to excite other people and getting them ready to buy the thing down the road, the sooner you get used to making that part of your routine, the easier it's going to be later. That's, that's really important. So yes, I'm going to answer the question. Yes, I do think you can change your marketing and need to change your marketing relative to where in the process you're at. That said, it is sometimes easier for a lot of people, especially those people who tell themselves a million ways from Sunday that they're not very good at marketing, that if I've just got some written down, if, I, if I've just got some book first, it's going to be easier. That is often the case for a lot of people. Super helpful that way. But yeah, I think it is a flexible sliding scale that allows you to succeed in a number of different ways, even when your goal is always the same of, of building an audience and motivating them and encouraging them to buy a book. I think where you come into the process and how you do that makes a difference. On we go to question two. Question number two. Why do you think writers are intimidated by even the basics of marketing? I think it's because 
first of all, yes, I will agree that a lot of writers, not all of them, but I think a lot of writers are intimidated by marketing just as a concept because they have a lot of assumptions and expectations about what marketing is. And when they picture somebody doing marketing, they picture like the worst case representative, like a used car salesman or some some kind of like gross sleazy con. Sleazy is a word you hear a lot. Gross con artist who's looking to like defraud you or, or bilk you for something in some way. And that feeds into that idea that maybe they're not good enough. There's, there's some imposter syndrome there that they're not good enough or that, you know, they're, they're not really legit yet. So asking for money or asking for your attention or time is, is wrong or bad, or they're trying to like on some level pull a fast one over on somebody. And that's just the concept of marketing. That's, that's not counting the, the mechanics of it, the production of it, the writing the posts and putting out the tweets and saying stuff and turning the camera on and talking or recording audio or whatever it is you're going to do for the act of marketing itself. I think when you combine the specifics and the anxiety and the frustration around doing this stuff, what do you mean I got to get on TikTok? What do you mean I have to turn the camera on? Or what do you mean I have to talk to somebody who doesn't know me about this thing I've done? When you, when you, you know, confront that kind of anxiety along with the assumptions and expectations of what it means to be a marketer and how we all hate spam and how we're all really quick to, you know, get frustrated or angry when we get those, you know, salesy phone calls about our car warranties or, you know, how we can switch money if we switch to this provider or something. I think all those factors, plus our own anxieties and insecurities, that it's new and we're just not going to be good at a thing. I think that really helps contribute to this idea that marketing is some kind of impossible thing they have to crack and some kind of thing that they are going to be bad at, like real bad, like totally bad, all the time bad. And maybe if they're lucky, they'll maybe kind of sort of get not good, but okay they'll at best be okay at it enough to sell the books in the quantity they want. And maybe, maybe, maybe just like buying a lotto ticket, they'll be the one in 80 billions of, um, of people out there who suddenly become like mega celebrities. I think with all those expectations and that, lack of experience and the fact that no one's really ever sat them down to say marketing is just talking about a thing you do in a way that encourages someone else to pay attention and that it, it doesn't need to be sleazy and it can be simple and it can be done a little bit every day and it can feel awkward because you're not going to get a response right away, but it, it is useful and can be done because there's not enough people explaining it that way. And because there's not enough people like giving a lot of support to that degree. Like no one's not enough cheerleaders. Everybody wants to explain to you that they have an exclusive strategy to do it, but nobody's out there telling you like, fuck yeah, you're doing great. I think that keeps writers intimidated because the mechanics of marketing are pretty simple. You're going to write stuff down. You're going to talk about stuff. You're going to say words. You're going to write stuff down. You're going to show people stuff. It's a little vulnerable, sure, but those acts of writing things down and saying things, that's stuff you do all the time. It's just that now, instead of doing it with your opinion about other people's stuff, a TV show you liked, a recipe you enjoyed, that kind of thing, now you're going to do it about stuff you made. 
And you're allowed to be proud of that. And you're allowed to be happy about it. And you're allowed to be excited about that. But I think all of that gets kind of downplayed, kind of minimized. Because that's, it feels weird. We're not used to that kind of like goodness. It feels like wrong in a way because it's new. But I think if it were explained easily and supported more aggressively, more cheerleading, I think people would be less intimidated. That's my thought anyway. On we go. To question three, a technical one. What's the difference between information and connection? So this refers to writing and narrative design, although it can apply to marketing like we talked about. But mostly it's about how we communicate to the reader, how we talk about stuff. Too often, uh, especially newer writers or overeager writers or unorganized writers, will confuse connection with information. Information is just, I'm going to tell you stuff. Or here is the stuff that I am telling you. Here are the facts. We often summarize this as an info dump in our books. Here's the scene where the wise old expert tells the characters stuff they don't know. Info dump. Here's where the the priest explains about the demon we're going to fight. Info dump. That kind of stuff. Connection is where you have material in the story that helps the reader relate to things. It's not necessarily factual. It's more emotional. It's more abstract. It's a little less grounded in the specifics of the stuff you've made up. And that's the difference. Information is stuff you made up. Here are the, here's the history of the five kingdoms. Here's the history of the princess and the castle. Here's the way we fight the dragon. Here's what the curse is. Here's how the magical doodad does its doodadness. That's information. And you can create information because you're the author. You made that shit up. That's on you. But those are just facts. And there is no immediate relationship the reader has to those facts other than they're the person who just read it or heard it or saw it or whatever. There's no connection beyond the fact that you have been informed, which is not really the kind of emotional connection we're going for. We are looking for an emotional connection with our art, with our work, with the stuff in front of us so that we can stay enthused and stay in, you know, keep reading it and keep liking it. Connection, well, connection deals in that and connection requires that. And connection is all about being... Um, vulnerable to some degree and understanding that what you're trying to do in addition to just talking about what you made, look at all the fancy cool shit I made up. You're also saying that, hey, other person who isn't me, I'm trying to demonstrate through this cool stuff I made up some kind of connection to you. I'm going to talk about what it feels like to feel XYZ feeling and I'm doing it through the vehicle and the medium of this made up stuff. That's a connection. Information is just fact. Connection is about relationship. The synthesis of those two things we interpret as engaged reading or an active reader or an engaged audience. We want information because that's what the story is. But connection is what we do with it and how we process that information. How does it make us feel when we read it? What are we trying to evoke or adduce in the reader when we write it? That's the difference. If that is unclear, if you need more qualification or clarification, ask. 
I'll, I'll try another way that there's a lot of different ways to explain that sort of thing. Uh, let me know if that one doesn't work. I'll try again. But first, while I put a mouthful of water in me, any questions from anybody here in chat? I saw a lot of people coming and going. Uh, I hope you're doing well. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a heavy talking day, so I don't have tea. I have many, many glasses of water, which hopefully will be many, many empty glasses of water by the time I'm done today. But there's, yeah, I've been doing a lot of talking. And if you are a, a podcast listener, especially a subscribing podcast member, uh, you're, you're going to really benefit from all the stuff I've been talking about today. So questions, anybody? About anything? Yes? No? Shall we just move on? Yeah, let's move on. Question number four. How do I become less of a perfectionist? Oh boy. Well, First of all, I am not necessarily the sole expert on perfectionism. And I think there are a number of factors outside of just being creative that contribute to perfectionism. For me, my sense of perfectionism stems from a profound feeling of inadequacy and a profound feeling of just everybody's better than me. And I don't necessarily know but I am supposed to know what it is I am supposed to do to be the best I can be, which is the bare minimum that everybody else was. That's how I describe my perfectionism. You can become less of a perfectionist as far as I know and as far as I feel. You can become less of a perfectionist by understanding that there's no benefit in being a perfectionist. You don't make a better thing. You don't get a bigger reward. You don't gain a better, larger audience. You don't make more money. You don't get more clicks just because it's perfect. Because the world is full of things that aren't perfect. And if you're like me, you can also be equally critical of things. You can look at stuff and look down your nose at stuff, sneer at things, be very judgy about stuff. So you're, you're quick to be both a perfectionist when it comes to yourself so you feel inadequate, but also very judgy about other people's stuff because on some level, you're kind of jealous. Holy shit, I can't believe they got that to work. I wish I could do something like that. Why am I not good enough to do something like that? That's, that's sort of like the stew I, I roast in the majority of my day. But being a perfectionist doesn't help. It doesn't serve any purpose. It doesn't mean we get the validation from the person or people we're seeking the validation from. It doesn't make people love us more. It doesn't fix the problems. It doesn't make up for the fact that we really fucked shit up before. It doesn't demonstrate enough responsibility to the people who demand it from us. It's just this thing we do as if it's going to accomplish something that it can't possibly accomplish. The degree of perfectionism doesn't help. And you can become less of it by looking not at being perfect, but looking at being productive. Productionism is not a word. I'm making it one for the sake of this. 
But if you let go of how something is supposed to be, you can focus better on how well you can do it. And how well you can do it is not a like subtle cue that I have to do it perfect. It's just that you can try your best. Trying your best is the kind of subjective perfectionism that should be acceptable. But don't keep telling yourself that you're just plain not good. Don't keep doing what I'm doing. Learn from my fault. Be, be better than me in this moment. And don't keep looking for reasons to tell yourself you're not good enough. Do better. Other than that, to, to be less of a perfectionist, go to therapy. Go to therapy, have a snack, drink some more water, feel good periodically, let yourself feel good periodically, and try not to let one action or activity determine and define you. Give that some thought. I'm going to answer this question in chat. Here's the question. I'm going to back up one second. I outlined my comic. I'm going to put it right on screen. I outlined my comic. Now, how do I write it? Okay. So you're going to start probably. So comic writing structure, we're going to deal with it in terms. I'm going to use the word boxes, but that does not necessarily mean I'm going to talk about literal boxes on the page. That comes later. For now, I want to think about framing a comic in the boxes in my head so that I can better translate it to the page. And you're going to think about your comic in terms of two things. What the action is that I can visually demonstrate in the art. And two, what the action accomplishes over the course of the story. Comics are very action-oriented. That doesn't necessarily mean big explosions. It just means people are doing stuff. Sometimes that stuff is just sitting there thinking, so we have a thought bubble. But it's still somebody's doing something. So you take your outline and you try to break that down into who's doing what and what are they trying to do it? Why are they trying to do it? Might be the easier way to ask that question. And you're going to do that for every major point in your outline. Some of the minor ones too. It's, it's not an exact science at that level. But you will take your outline in whatever form your outline is and break it down into, okay, here's a character. This is what they're doing. Here's why they're doing it. And then beneath that point, you are going to like describe what should be in the box. These would be art notes. So, you know, this is the moment where our, our story is about somebody learning a skill. It's a real simple structure. Our outline says... Uh, they get out of bed and they go to their job to go learn this skill. So your first step would be, what's their action? What are they going to do? They're going to get out of bed. Why are they doing it? Because they have to start the story. So they're going to get out of bed. What does that look like? All right, so maybe the sheet has moved, their feet are on the floor. Maybe it's just their feet getting into their shoes. Maybe they're fumbling to get dressed. Maybe they're just laying there and the alarm clock is blaring and, and they're thinking, oh my God, I have to go to work today. There's lots of different specific ways to picture these moments in these things. You just have to choose one. And then what are they doing? Why are they doing it? And then how does this move to the next thing? Because if I have one panel where they're laying in bed and the alarm is going off, maybe the second panel is they look back at the alarm clock and it's now much later. They've, they've been spacing out. So now time is different. So now they have to rush. So then we get a couple panels and a quick little montage of, oh my God, they're running around, getting dressed, pulling on clothes, worrying about being late. 
and then we show them on the bus. Always start, though, with what is the character doing? What's the action I'm supposed to be picturing as a reader? How does this action help answer the question of why am I seeing this thing in front of me? And then figure out the visuals for it. What do I want to see specifically to illustrate, to embody this idea of why are they doing this thing and what are they doing? And then you just script it out. Box one, here's what it is. Box two, here's what it is. Three, what it is. Four, so on and so on until you're done. Until you have completed a list, a a file, a document that not only contains what the characters are doing, what they're saying, but also uh, describing to some degree what the reader should be seeing. And then it moves forward from there. That's how you write a comic. There are comic script templates that will take the same information and arrange it in certain ways depending on how the particular artist wants the script like made. There's, there's a couple different styles to it, but they're all, they're all going to be the same thing just with the pieces in a different order. What's happening, in what order, and what are the visuals? Sit down and think about it in terms of the outline. Okay, so I've got this sentence as an outline. How do I break this down? What's the next thing in my outline? And always go from one thing to the next. You don't have to think about, okay, 22 steps from now I have this extra thing. Just go one, and then the next, and then the next, and the next, and you will get it done. What a great question that was. Thank you so much for asking. I'm going to keep moving on. Question five, a romance question. What is an attractive quality and how does it differ from attraction potential? Okay, here we go. This is mostly romance writing theory, but it also applies to anything with a romance subplot or just a sense of a character wanting somebody or even wanting a thing because it doesn't, this isn't limited to people on people action. This could be, I really want chocolate or I really want the sports team to win the event or something. An attractive quality is a specific element that the, all right, so there are two people. There's the wanter, the person who wants, also called the desirer, the person doing the determination that it is attractive. So that's, you know, if we're looking in a hetero set, in a hetero romance, it's the woman seeing the guy. And then there's so that she's the desirer. She's doing the act of seeing the attractive quality. And then there is the, He's often the other person is often referred to as the target of of attraction, or the receiver of their interaction. He's being looked at. The person, the receiver, the target, has attractive qualities. Those are the specific things about that person that the desirer finds attractive. So for a lot of hetero romance novels, that would be stuff like stubble, abs, maybe tattoos or a bad boy edge or, you know, something 
and it's not always physical. Sometimes it's, it's attitude. Sometimes it's the way they carry themselves without thinking twice about it, or it's their confidence or, you know, maybe it's implication. The idea that, Oh, it looks like they have a huge bulge in their pants and that's appealing to some people. Attractive qualities are specific. You can point to them either as physical attributes, physical elements, or point to them in terms of a mental or emotional element. They act or behave a certain way, or they give off a vibe a certain way. Those are qualities. They're specific. Attraction potential doesn't have specifics to it. It's the overall big picture. If we add up all the qualities and we add up all the specifics, then yes, we should be able to determine the attraction potential. That's the idea that it's okay based on what I am seeing and feeling and experiencing. It is okay to be attracted to this person and that each person's attraction potential is different. I am more attracted to that person, person A, than I am to person B. That doesn't make person B, you know, bad or wrong or anything. It's just they're not the person in the story to whom I, the desirer, am attracted to. Attraction potential is conceptual. It's broad. Attraction qualities are specific. And they're usually specific to the person. Because let's let's just use a, a we'll make up an example. Let's suppose you really are into eyes. You know, maybe piercing blue eyes, let's say. You might find that to be a very attractive quality. Two people might have blue eyes, but you are only attracted to one person's eyes. Only one person's really doing it for you. That's their attractive quality. But both of these people collectively, in addition to their eyes and their attitude and their, I don't know, shoulders and their their laugh or something, they both possess a high degree of attraction potential. You usually want to deal with attraction potential when you're framing a love triangle because you're trying to make the choice between two people difficult. You don't want it to be like, obviously, I should go with this guy. You, you want to make him somewhat, the two things somewhat equivalent or the three things or whatever your, your relationship geometry is. Everybody's got a different attraction potential. That's what makes it complicated. That's what helps create tension in these situations. So you set up a situation where the qualities are part of what helps make the desirer figure out, make their choice as to how to root through all the people with their different potential. That's the major difference. There are subtler differences. Um, potential is speculative. Uh, I think I'm, I, I could see myself, you know, having a good time with them. I can fantasize about this person, but it is the qualities that allow me to transform that fantasy into specifics. Oh, I've seen them. I've seen, you know, this part of their anatomy or I've, I've seen them, you know, up close and or personally, so I know what to picture so my fantasy can be more accurate. Those are subtler points, uh, not necessarily the best way of determining one from the other, but those are important points when we're trying to figure out how to shape and frame relationships. And this also, I, I want to point out before we move on, this does cross like gender identity lines and, and sexuality lines. This is as true for, you know, hetero romance as it is for LGBTQ plus romance as it is for ace characters as it is for 
um, platonic relationship structure, familial relationship structure, just because it's sexualized in my example, because that's the most common iteration of it, does not mean it always has to be uh, sexualized in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes an attractive quality is just something you like about a friend or something you like about a person. An attraction potential is the sum total of who they are and how that strikes you. That's something we're thinking about. On we go. Question number six. I'm going to get a mouthful of water because this one's long. I posted my book as blog posts, but only a few people read it for free. Am I still a published author? Yes. Yes, you are. I've seen this argument made before, often on Reddit. It, it doesn't, the degree, the number of people who read it doesn't count more if it's a bigger number. It's not like it doesn't count if just two people saw it. It, it doesn't count more if 10 people saw it. It might feel differently to you because, oh my God, 10 people is bigger than two people. But it, it, the number doesn't matter. It's the fact that anybody, any number greater than zero, read it. The other problem is that uh, the internet is more or less forever up to a certain point. And through caching, through the internet wayback machine, through loads of different things, uh, it is possible uh, to dig up some stuff. So while people might not have seen it at the time, it might still be out there. If people were willing to dig through a blog's archives, they could read it again. The point is not how many people read it at all. It's the fact that you posted it. You published it. You put it out for someone to read. The fact that only two people did or a few people did, whatever that means, that counts. You posted it. You posted it with the intent of having it read. If you are now regretting that because, oh my God, I didn't mean to, I, I wanted to sell it. Well, okay, lesson learned. The follow-up question for this is usually some combination of, well, can I pull it down and resell it? Maybe. If you did it yourself, yes, you can. Um, you, you totally can. It's not great, but you can do it again. Just don't mention, hey, this used to be free on my blog because that's going to bother people that somebody, they don't know the truth, so they're going to assume loads of people read it for free and now you're just double dipping. They don't know the reality of it. And if you're going traditional with it, they'll, they won't even let you. Like, no, that's a, that's a huge no-no in traditional spaces because once it's out in the world somewhere, somebody can read it, uh, traditional publishing will just say, oh, well, you published it already. This is why you don't want to just post stuff for free. Uh, don't do that. If you want to post it for free because you don't care about selling and you just want to post it, then post it. And this question is not for you and it's not that big a deal. And you're a published author the minute you press post. The minute it goes up, the minute it's out there in the world, even if it's out there only for 10 seconds, you're published. Hooray, Yahtzee. However, if you were trying to do this in a way that you know people will pay you for your book, don't publish it on your blog. Publish the link, talk about the writing process, but lead somebody to a sale, lead somebody to a transaction, and then you will make the transaction and make the money you want. But the minute you publicize it, the minute you get this story out into the world in whatever medium, I don't care if it's on your blog, I don't care if you publish it a tweet at a time, you're published, done. Just because it doesn't conform to your idealized version of publication does not... Um, 
doesn't mean it doesn't count. So congratulations, you're a published author. Enjoy. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? I saw more people come in. Hello. Hi, I'm going to keep drinking water before my voice cracks. Questions, anybody? Yes, no, else we'll keep moving. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you too. Quick question. What are some steps I can, I'm going to put this on the screen, I can take to build trust in myself creatively? First of all, that's not a quick question. That doesn't make it a bad question, but it's not exactly like a quick thing. So we're going to talk about this for a second. You have to, when you're, when you're, Make When you're going to be creative to any degree in any way, shape, or form, you have to trust yourself. There has to be that sense of, I'm good enough to at least do this. Not, and this is important, not I'm good enough to make a thing that is so good it will be amazing and perfect and flawless. Don't focus on the product here. Don't focus on the end result here. Think about this in terms of, I am good enough to do a thing and don't tag it with, I'm good enough to do a thing well, because that's, that's a subsequent step. We'll get there, but we're not there right now. For now, you just got to show yourself that you can do this and reassure yourself as you're getting started. That's going to be a pretty um, clear and substantial thing to do. So literally this comes down to how you communicate with yourself. For me, this is awkward. Um, <laughs> I talk to myself. I, I, I talk to myself as though I'm about five, six, or seven years old. And um, I don't sound like this. I sound like I used to at five, six, and seven. And uh, that kid is terrified. That kid is terrified of the whole damn world and terrified of doing anything in a way that gets him yelled at. So I, the grown-ass human version of me, have to do a lot of reassurance out loud verbally that I'm doing okay. I'm doing it in my head right now as I'm talking to you. I do this all the time when I podcast. I do this all the time when I write. And I just, it, it's just a simple matter of I'm doing okay. You know, yes, I forgot to turn the microphone on in the opening minute. Yes, I forgot to set that thing up. I had to, re, I had to update everything. Sure. But I was able to fix it. And over time, as you do things, and as you're able to reassure yourself, even if you are convinced, definite, certain, whatever, that what you're doing sucks, that what you're doing is a problem, and it blows, and why are you doing it in the first place, and all, and all that stuff, even if you're so quick to jump there, because, I don't know, you're holding yourself to an unrealistic standard for no reason that you can immediately think of, you still get to reassert that comfort with yourself that you're doing okay. Over time, you get to start pushing the story forward, start working on your creativity. Yeah, you're great at doing the little stuff. I can turn the microphone on. I can talk into it. I can answer some you know, pretty straightforward questions and everything's going great. But when someone asks me something maybe like this, that's a little bit more thought provocative 
or if somebody were to ask me something incredibly personal, which I would answer publicly on a stream, I don't really have a problem with that, but I'd have to stop and think about how I would frame it. Um, you have to do not only that reassurance, but you also have to be a little bit brave and say, okay, we're now moving into a little bit deeper water. We are doing a thing now that isn't necessarily as safe, that's the word I'm going to use, in, in order to go forward. So what do you do? We just try. We've tried before. We were doing great. We've got a good batting average. We've tried 10 times and nine of those times we did good. So maybe statistically we're on a roll. We should keep going. And then you just try and you try to get those words on the page and you try to get this idea out and you try to get the thing outlined or you try whatever it is that you're, that you're working on. You just give it a shot. And when you see that it goes on the page, when you see that this thing that in your head you're worried about, oh my God, I don't know if I wrote this scene really well. When you see it on the page and it's no longer as abstract as, you know, just what's in your head and what you're building up, building it up as, you can trust yourself. I did a thing. Is it perfect? No. Is it flawless while I never have to edit it? No, that's unrealistic. But for now, I was at least able to get the idea across. Go me. And then you just move to the next go me potential situation. And looking backwards, you want to aim your focus not at what you haven't done yet or not at how far from finished or finalized or ideal the, the, the current thing is from the end. Don't look at you know bread dough and judge loaves of bread. You want to look and say, hey, I made a thing. I did this. I took these steps. They're small. I'm not done yet, but I've at least started. The ball's rolling. Um, I'm underway. I haven't messed it up yet. I'm actually doing okay. Let me sh- let me let me say to myself and reassure my amygdala, which is freaking the hell out, that I have completed some things successfully. Here they are: one, two, three, four, five, or whatever it might be, and it's okay. If you do that, which sounds ridiculous, I know. But if you can do that pretty regularly, you will have more trust in yourself creatively because you'll be willing to take bigger and bigger leaps knowing that you have not only a string of accomplishments but also the skills developed from those accomplishments to try something bigger, knowing also that if you were to really mess it up, like you try and it just does not work, it doesn't undo the success you had wow, I really tried to write that dialogue scene and it just did not happen today. Okay, well, that doesn't mean that the last week of writing is wasted. It just means that today this dialogue scene didn't happen. I'll try again later. It's about changing your perspective in order to give yourself a more positive approach so that trust can be developed as opposed to holding yourself to a rigorous, let's call it a standard. It's an expectation. A rigorous standard or expectation that it has to be done a certain way in order for you to be good enough to warrant trust because that's the kind of criteria you have for other people. You're not other people to yourself. You're you, and you are allowed to trust yourself. So that's not a quick question, but it's a good chewy one, and I really appreciate you asking. Thanks so much. Other questions? Question. I got caught up in a side quest. How do I go back to the main plot? Okay. What a great question. My first 
follow-up is going to be, is the side quest done? If it's done, you can just go back. Just finish up the paragraph, finish up the page, finish up the chapter, and just go back. If it's not done yet, like, that, you know, we'll deal with the ending down the road, at least finish the part you're on. Like, wrap up the sentence, wrap up the paragraph, take the action of whatever it is to a logical breaking off point, and then just wrap it up and go back to the main plot. If you have a character who is, you know, trying to get promoted at work, that's their main plot, but they got caught up and they're stuck in the elevator as part of a side quest, we have to get them out of the elevator before they can go do the rest of the stuff, so focus on getting them out of the elevator. However long it takes, don't worry about its length. We can deal with that later in editing and revision, but finish the side quest or finish enough of it that you can come to a natural breaking point so you can pick it up later and then just go back. Just new paragraph, new page, new chapter, something and go back. And if you're feeling like there's a gap, like, uh, there's a big hole. What do I do? Leave the hole for now. It doesn't need to be filled in. You don't need to make a bridge. No one's going to know it's there except you and me. And I don't care if there's a hole. I don't think less of you because there's a hole. I'm going to forget that there's a hole in your story in like three minutes when I answer the next question or whatever. It's okay if there's a hole. You can always go back and fill it in. Just go back. You're not going to forget. You're not going to leave it there. It's just that you're putting it down for now. That's totally fine. And then go back and fix it later when you are, I don't know, differently stressed or differently able. It's okay to jump to a new thing. It's really all right. It's all going to get finished in the end. You're just not there yet. Good question. Other questions? Else we will just keep moving. Yeah, move. All right, here we go. Question seven. What is off tension? Okay, okay. So we know what tension is, right? Tension is the unknown, the dynamic between things. It's the, the, the any minute now the killer could strike, the monster could get us from underneath the bed. Any minute now the person could tell us how they really feel. Any minute this thing could happen. There's, but there's, un, there's not yet doneness to the situation. That's tension. Tension drives stories. We like tension. Big fans of tension here at John helps you write better. But tension isn't one size fits all. And tension only, uh, tension isn't only just one flavor. There's main tension and off tension. Main tension is the tension around the problem immediately facing things. Like, any minute now, the monster is going to get us. We know the monster's in the room. I'm hiding from the monster. That's tension. Off tension is tension for stuff that is present in the story, but not happening right now. So, for instance, if our main tension is, oh, my God, the monster's going to get us. Holy shit, what are we going to do? That's main tension. Our off tension is... Uh, I'm also trying to avoid my mom because I'm in trouble for breaking curfew or, uh, off tension is how am I going to, you know, travel back through time to pass my history class 
or if the main tension is, I don't know if I can learn karate to defeat the, the preppy kids. The off tension is, I also don't know if the girl, the only girl in the story is also the girl who likes me. Off tension is tension for a thing not active and present in the story, but it's still tension that exists. It's just that we're not focused on it. It might be easier to think about off tension in terms of right now while you're sitting here, you might be paying attention to me talking. That's your focus. Your off focus would be the other stuff that you're aware of that you know you need to do. Later, you're going to have to put on socks or you're going to have to have dinner or you're going to you know, have to go talk to that person you don't like to talk to or there's other stuff happening in the world. It isn't just all me, unfortunately, even though I would love for it to be that way. But off tension is all this stuff that isn't present in the moment. It's still there. It's still a thing that causes tension. It's still a thing that moves story forward. It's just not our focus right now. That's off tension. You see it a lot in stories where there's a lot of action, a lot of stuff happening. And we need to like focus on this for a minute, put everything to the side. Tension, off tension. Good question. On we go. Question eight. Hey, look, it's one of those thoughtful, provocative questions. Didn't you used to be an asshole? Yes. And some people would argue that I'm still an asshole. I might still argue that I'm still an asshole. But uh, yeah, I used to be. I used to be really selfish. More selfish than I am now. I still think I'm, I'm pretty selfish. I still think I'm pretty not great a person. And I'm, I can give you a whole list of people who you could call and text right now who will tell you I am actively not a great person I'm not doing the dumb shit I used to do that very clearly made me an asshole in a certain persuasion or flavor, but now I'm a different kind. Now I'm a guy who's got a whole different set of problems, and I think that still causes me uh, a pretty good deal of grief. I mean, there's a reason why I'm in therapy four days a week. I think there's a, there's a reason why I'm as anxious as I am and embarrassed about the things I am and ashamed of the things I am and feel as guilty as I do and feel inadequate and worry about all the shit I do. Um, but yeah, I used to be a really big giant asshole. I used to be really difficult. I used to be really mean. I used to be really, um, really, really like I'm competitive. I used to be like 10 times more competitive because I was really worried I would be ignored. I was really worried that I wouldn't get positive attention. I wouldn't get what I wanted. Not like objects, just I didn't think anybody would give a shit. I didn't think anybody would love me. I didn't think I was good enough. There are, again, still plenty of people who will tell you I'm not, wasn't good enough before, am not good enough now, am not going to suddenly be good enough tomorrow. And some of that's because of what I did to them, with them, around them, near them, in some cases because of them. And that's something I have to deal with. And that's, that's not great. Um, that kind of sucks, frankly. Like, I used to be an asshole. I hurt a lot of people. My selfishness, my fear, my anxiety, my self-doubt, my loneliness, my pain, you know, my whatever insert thing here hurt people. And those people are still hurting. And you can make a case that, you know, they're still hurting and they're going to be hurting even though, like, I don't interact with them in the same way, if at all. I used to be an asshole. I think there's a lot of people. I can't say a lot of people. I think there are some people who will only identify me that way because of how I used to be 
or because of what I did to them. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. It sucks. I wish it were different. I wish more people genuinely loved me. I wish I were better. I wish I were a good creative person who was profoundly nice because I don't think I'm profoundly like at my core nice. I have it in me to be nice. I like being nice. I like not being an asshole, but there are still times and spaces and places where I am. And it's, thankfully it's not always by choice anymore. I no longer sit and make the decision. Hey, what's the shitty thing to do? I'm going to do that on purpose. Other times though, because of situations and contexts, that's often the only choice I have because I'm following through on something and I can't do anything about it. I used to be an asshole. I spend a lot of time, a lot of time, especially in the fall and winter. Um, feeling terrible about it, actively terrible. Uh, like big, giant, violate, twitch terms of service to describe it level terrible. The kind of terrible that involves like hospitals and, and, and um, severe um, deals. It's a big deal. And I'm, I'm sure this question is, is freaking people out. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. I feel guilty about that. But yeah, I used to be an asshole. I am less of an asshole now. I think I am worth a shot, especially by those people who didn't give me one before because they just heard from, heard from, heard from somebody. Uh, there's still a lot of that. I don't like it. I don't feed into that. I don't care either. I can't change everybody's mind. But I used to be an asshole, and I really make an effort to be less of one now. I hope that doesn't, send you running for the hills as I watch my, my viewer counter plummet. But, um, yeah, I used to be an asshole and I'm really sorry. It was wrong. Sometimes I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. Sometimes I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway because I was afraid to have a difficult conversation or afraid to admit something. Stuff wasn't working. I didn't know what else to do. I was afraid to go forward. I was afraid to stop. You know, stuff like that. I'm sorry. If I hurt you and you're watching this, you're seeing this on YouTube or you're hearing this, I am sorry. I don't know if I can fix it. Um, I don't always feel like I deserve that chance to fix it with some people. Uh, with some people, I don't want to fix it. I just want to, like, walk away from the plane crash kind of a thing. But, uh, yep, used to be an asshole. Better now, though. Hopefully. Every day. Some days are easier than others. But, yeah, used to be an asshole. Good question. Thanks for letting me uh, talk about that. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. On we go. Question nine. You said on Substack that you'll encounter yourself while you write. That's true. You will. You will have to sit and deal with yourself while you're writing. What if you don't like who you meet? Hey, see previous question about me being an asshole, right? You're, you're not always going to like yourself. You're not always going to be your own best pal. You're going to be frustrated by yourself. You're going to be maybe angry at yourself. You're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel ashamed. You're going to feel sad, angry, mean, tired, whatever you won't always like yourself 
you won't always like yourself for what you did or what you didn't do or what you could have done or how you keep telling yourself that it needs to be more when you're already doing plenty or any number of reasons in between or around that. There are going to be times where you will not like the person you meet while you are being creative and being vulnerable and opening yourself up and trying to express yourself in a way where other people care, not just like other people want to like pounce on you or love you or make you feel good or like you, but just care, just connect with another human being in the process of doing that. You might have to deal with your own shit and you might get frustrated that you have shit at all to deal with, let alone the volume of shit that you do. It's fixable. You can change it. You can identify its constituent pieces and you can do something about it. I don't like how tied I am to perfection. Okay. That's something that can be worked on. I don't like that I beat myself up that I'm not getting more done faster. Well, that's something you can work on. There are tools for that. There's conversations to be had with some people. You, you can do stuff like that. If you don't like who you meet when you meet yourself, instead of scrapping everything and being a blank slate and then trying to make yourself into the thing that you think other people will like, start by asking yourself what it is about you that you do like. Maybe you've, I don't know, maybe you've got a great sense of humor Maybe you, you really enjoy how much you know about, I don't know, the fall of Morgoth. Maybe you've just got great boobs. I don't know. But there's something somewhere about you that you like. And it might be superficial and it might be temporary, but it's still a building block. It's still a start. And then from there, you can identify the things that you want to improve so that you can like them more. For me one of the things that made me like part of me more was I lost weight and I got in shape and I did it not because, you know, I didn't do it just for the medical benefit of, Hey, I'm not going to die now. Hooray. I did it also because everybody told me I couldn't do it. And I love proving people wrong. I like that about me. And the fact that now when I, very rarely show somebody like, hey, look how much weight I've lost. And they say so. It feels good. Not just because it's it's a particular person telling me, oh my God, you lost so much weight. Though that is a major factor. It's, it's also a matter of somebody is seeing me. If you don't like who you meet, you can change it. I used to do a lot of drugs. I used to be really shitty. Um, I used to be differently lonely than I am now. Now I'm just lonely, lonely. Before I was lonely and like angry, lonely. Now I'm just sad and lonely. Progress, right? You can change who you are. You can change how you interface with your creativity. It just takes time. And so often we are unwilling to be anything other than impatient because, and then we generate reasons. We think about why we can't, we think about why we can't do it faster. We think about how it's messing other things up. It's totally okay. If you don't like who you meet, do something about it. Small steps, a little bit at a time, one thing after the other. And you will eventually, if you stick with it, build yourself, reshape yourself into somebody you do like. I like me when I'm creative. I think I'm great. 
like legit great, not arrogant great. Like I think I'm pretty creative. You get me talking about Patreon shit. You get me talking about how to answer a question or whatever. This is my best self. You want to see me at my not best self? Well, there's other things we can talk about. But here and now, I am rocking and rolling. And I did that by just wanting to change. So if I can do it, and I know how lazy I am, and I know how impatient I am, and I know how easily discouraged I am, if I can do it, you can do it. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? Somehow I see people are still here. And I want to tell you, I am deeply appreciative because I, I just didn't just didn't expect that. I figured I'd hit the asshole question and it'd just be me talking to the cat who heard me rehearse. So they kind of know what to expect. Questions? No, we'll keep going. Any recommend, there's a pile of things. Any recommendations for spooky movies that we can look at as writers? You mean movies you can take apart and become a better writer? What do you mean when you say spooky movie we can look at? You mean just like fun stuff to watch? Or do you mean like purposefully improve how we write horror? Say more words about what you mean and I will happily direct a... Uh, and answer your way. I love you too, man. It's good to hear from you. I always appreciate our conversations, and I'm really grateful that you're here. I'm just double-checking to make sure I got all the questions out of my DMs. And I did. Spooky movies we can look at as writers. Scroll here. Movies we can take apart to improve how we write. Yeah, totally. Here's a couple. Um, I fully believe that if you go look at, in the modern, like, concept of slasher films, let's do this by section. If you're looking for the best slasher film to take apart to understand story, I need you to go look at Scream. I really think that's the best slasher movie ever, 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 ever. Better than Halloween better than Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, and I, I say that because Scream is willing to identify its components and it tells you it's a component while also making fun of it while also doing something with it. And that kind of ability to deconstruct and say, oh, that's this and oh, that's that can really help because when it comes to your own writing, then you can stop and look and go, Ah, I've got a, you know, a hero with a heart of gold or I've got a, a fallen penitent, which is a trope about a priest who regains his faith. Um, and you're able to not only identify the trope like, oh, goody, I know the trope. Hooray. <laughs> but you're also like, you know, able to do something with it. Well, the fallen penitent requires that I do this, this and this. So I'm going to subvert some part of it. Scream is a great instructional horror other instructional horror. I think, I think Dracula, but I'm going to be particular with my Dracula. I think the OG Dracula from the thirties is it 1931. I think, I think that Dracula is good, but I think 
even the more romantic iterations of Dracula, like um, the Dracula with Gary Oldman, Keanu Reeves, and uh, Winona Ryder can be a thing. It's a little bit over the top in spots and a little bit loosey-goosey in other spots. Um, but I think that can teach us something about the nature of writing in a, in a more evocative style as opposed to something more concrete. I think if you're looking for like concrete, how do I write like just intense graphic stuff? Hmm. It's the most graphic thing I've seen. Uh, there's the newer versions of evil dead that are upsettingly graphic. I think it's the, the, the last one is that new version of evil dead Two. Um, it's, it's like splatter gore porn to some degree. It's, it's, it's over the top. And if you're looking for like how to write detail, that's a real good way to write detail, but please know that that movie is uncomfortable. So watch it with the sound off uh, legit. And then just pay attention to what you see on screen, which I know is a little ableist, but uh, I don't think that movie should be viewed otherwise. Cause it's just, ah, um, it's not, it's not a good movie from the construction of here's how I tell a good story. But if we're looking at a spooky thing that has a lot of detail that I can demonstrate a style of writing detail, it's pretty good. Um, the Shining, mostly. Not all of it. I think if you take out the lady in the tub and you just focus on everything else, the twins, the hotel, the sense of dread, I think that can give you a sense of how to write... Um, a sense of creeping dread really effectively. I think, um, I mean, one more Salem's lot. It's a better book to take apart because it's a great take on vampire structure, but, um, it's kind of bad. It's kind of, kind of trash TV as a movie, but, um, setup wise, it's, it's well paced. My problem is, I tend not to watch a lot of spooky stuff because I am, as somebody anxious, I am easily frightened by things. And as a grown-ass man, I, I will sleep with a light on if I need to. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I hate. One of the big things I used to hate to do was uh, go watch a horror movie because some I, I would somehow find uh, dates who loved horror. Uh, and, and we would go see a horror movie and I'd be freaked way the fuck out. And then our date would part for whatever reason, you know, just the end of the night, have a good night. And uh, I'd be terrified and have to like go home and sleep with the lights on. The nice thing about being in, in uh, at least a, a moment where you're with another human being for the night, uh, if the monster gets you, you're not, you're not going alone. So I, I always used to take that as a great sense of comfort. And I tend to steer away from spooky stuff uh, because I am easily... Uh, affected by that i'm a big I'm a, I'm a jump scare wuss like a big i don't care for them at all uh they they mm, nope but if you're looking at, on how to write an effective jump scare there's a really bad version of the exorcist with stellan skarsgård that does some pretty effective jump scares also the first episode of midnight the midnight club does good jump scares uh also while i'm thinking about um Flanagan projects, uh, midnight mass 
I think better than the house of uh, fall of the house of Usher because the fall of the house of Usher is just a little bit too much. It's just everything turned up to 11 midnight mass is subtle and horror should be subtle. Go watch midnight mass. I think those are, that's my answer for now. If I think about more things, I'll put it on the discord. Um, but it'll be, yeah, I'll have to give that some thought. Great question. Love it. Other questions. Really, go watch Midnight Mass. It, it's real, real good, you guys. Have I done a Patreon on Dr. Sleep? I did do a Patreon on Dr. Sleep. I did cover Dr. Sleep. Um, I did do that. Yeah. Um, I, did, I did cover The Shining sequel. I, I thought it was a little disjointed in spots and I wanted it to dive deeper than it did into some elements. And I thought as a meditation on addiction and recovery, it was really, really good. Um, but as like a shining do over as a way for closure for that, I didn't think it got, it was as effective as I thought. Um, let me, I am 99% certain I did a doctor sleep. Yeah, I did a doctor sleep in February, so it's it's still hanging out um, somewhere over on the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash John helps you write better. It should be there. I do not remember the it, it's sortable by tag. Uh, chances are um, it mentions Obi Wan Kenobi or The Shining uh, because that's the kind of obnoxious shit I do with tags. So yeah, I've covered Doctor Sleep. Midnight Mass was excellent. Uh, I could probably, gosh, I should do something on Patreon for that. That's a really good idea. What am I doing this weekend? Maybe I guess I'm doing Midnight Mass. We'll see. Great. File that away. Where's my notepad? Let's write this down. I had somebody leave me a podcast comment that they get really irritated when I have like these things while I'm recording this. Like I'm supposed to be recording it a certain way and I should tuck my shirt in. That's not going to happen. I'm wearing a t-shirt with a woman's face on it. Um, that I'm supposed to you know, tuck my shirt in and be a certain way. And uh, no, that's not happening. This is this is what happens when I turn the microphone on. I'm me all the time. Uh, midnight Mass. Patreon. Awesome. I meant to do something Halloween specific for Patreon and, and didn't. Um, my bad. Poor scheduling on my part. I lost track of time. Shall we move on? Let us, let us ramble onward. Bathrobe John is best, John. You are not alone in that thought. I do love bathrobe me. Bathrobe me, um, actually, I put a hoodie on. I had a plumber come and fix the, the sink in the bathroom, so I didn't want to wear a bathrobe because I, I'd have to go talk to a human being. So I put on a hoodie. The bathrobe's going back on the minute I'm done here. I promise because I'm, it's, it's warmer than this hoodie is. On we go, though. Bathrobe John is best John for life. Question 10. Shouldn't I be worrying about my word count in my first draft? No. Just no. No. You should not be worried about your word count in your first draft. I don't care if that means your first draft is 300 million words. I don't care if it's 400,000. I don't care if it's 75 chapters. I don't, it doesn't matter. It's a first draft. The job of a first draft is to be 
completed. Not perfect. Just get all the idea out of your head. And if that means the idea is massive and huge and there's like a billion little like dangly bits and extra parts, yeah, that's fine. It's a first draft. The reason why we have things like revising and a second draft or a third draft or a 10th draft or who whatever else is so that we can refine and hone your idea. Don't worry about word count. Way too many people talk themselves out of an entire frame of reference, an entire goal for writing by saying, oh my God, I'm writing a first draft and I'm already at 7,000 words. Oh no, I only have 93,000 left to do and I'm barely out of chapter one. Holy shit, what's wrong with me? Nothing is wrong with you. It just means it's a first draft. And it's honestly not that bad that your first chapter is 7,000 words. Who cares? Don't hold yourself to some unrealistic expectation that you think it's supposed to be when it's finished while you're still making it. Again, remember the bread dough. You are making the dough. You can't judge it in terms of a baked loaf. One isn't the other. It will turn into something like it, but it's not the same. Don't sweat your word count. Just get the story out. Question 11. What's something people often don't consider when designing covers? Meg, Meg, this question is, is for you because you were the first person I thought of when, uh, when this question came up. You didn't ask this question, but I'll, I'll give you two, okay? One, first thing. Uh, and, and I don't think a lot of people consider this color blindness. I think a lot of people when they're designing covers, don't stop and think about what the visual would look like if you couldn't perceive a color. If the, the striking of your, if the green of your forest looked muted or silver because you've got some degree of green color blindness. What does that do for the impact, the visual and emotional impact of your cover? Colorblindness, I do not think, is accounted for when people design covers. It's, a, it's one of those, like, uh, under-the-surface ableist things that we all need to be more cognizant of from time to time. I'm, I'm, I do it. I do it when I make graphics. Now I do it when I make uh, thumbnails. I, I should probably ask more people, hey, does this look okay, but uh, I'm very aware of what color combinations to use when I'm trying to get information across so that it is clear because I, I want it to be clear for everybody. Color blindness is a huge, uh, I think, um, <laughs> I was going to say blind spot, <coughs> but that's not the best way to say that. I think color blindness is an underappreciated concept in cover design. Let me get a mouthful of water and I'll give you one more. Low vision, not total blindness, but low vision, impaired vision. I think people, especially when they're doing back blurbs and they're trying to, you know, get a little, 
goofy with their font because they want to maximize space. So they go to an, they go to a, a maybe a messy little font in a small font size because they want to squeeze a lot of text in there. Or um, they want to clutter the image with stuff. So the, the distinctions between things beyond just color gets kind of left in the dirt. It doesn't really, it gets muddy and gets mushy and it doesn't become clear anymore because you got to have a big active cover or whatever the current trend in covers is. For a while, it was smoke. Everybody and their mother had smoke and silhouettes of houses and forests and things were, you know, monochromatic or they were singular. There was like one single color, but it was always like an insensitive color, like shocking urine yellow or something. But people don't, I don't think people consider low vision readers when they're designing covers. They, they think about their cover in terms of only its emotional punch. But you've got to consider the person seeing the cover in addition to how that cover will affect anybody. Because people with different degrees of sightedness will encounter something differently. And it's not that you need to figure out a way to account for everybody. Because you just can't. But you do need to be cognizant that ableism is a thing. And you do need to be aware that you can, <coughs> excuse me, you can, you can develop a cover that isn't as impassable for some people as it might be for others. But yeah, colorblindness and low vision are huge factors in visual design that need to be talked about more. And certainly by experts better than me, because I am no expert in either of those two arenas. But I can certainly recommend you an expert. Um, if you're over on the Patreon and you're over on the Discord, I'd be happy to recommend you uh, an expert for that kind of stuff. She's very good. Okay, on we go to question 12. <clears throat> what if I like writing newsletters more than any other kind of marketing? Well, I, I guess you like newsletters then. It's not bad. Like, it's not wrong. I, I, got, I got this question earlier last week. Almost, it could have been in last week's chat. But I got this newsletter that, um, I'm sorry, I got this question about newsletters. Like, they really like writing newsletters and they hate doing Facebook posts. So when I said, well, then just do newsletters, they had this moment of panic because, well, I'm not supposed to. And I don't know who told them that. I don't know who told them that marketing has to be like this incredibly, like de forcibly diverse thing. I'm, I'm here and there and on this platform and I'm on that platform. If stuff isn't working for you, and I don't just mean like it's not getting a thousand million people, but if you don't like doing something, you, you don't have to keep doing it just because you either feel everybody is supposed to be doing it or everybody else is doing it and you don't want to feel left out. That's fine. It's okay. You, 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 can, you can just stick to newsletters. Newsletter marketing, still really effective. Focus on that. that. Now, that said, if you are somebody who doesn't, who can say, I don't like any marketing, so I'm not going to do any marketing, this is not where you get to cop out. This is not where you get to avoid doing all that stuff. There is some avenue of expression for you out there somewhere where you can communicate to other humans about what you've done with the intent of making some kind of sale or transaction happen. I don't know what that avenue is. It's going to be different for everybody. 
but it does exist. And you should go out and find it, especially if you're the sort of person who talks about wanting to make this stuff and do this stuff with the intent of having sales. You don't, you don't get to weasel your way out. But if you prefer writing newsletters or you like tweeting or you like making TikToks over something else, go focus on that. Follow that energy. Follow that idea up. Do something with it. This is especially true if you're really good at something and it's growing, but you see this other stuff you're doing and you're not getting diddly squat. You don't have to keep doing the thing that isn't working on some weird hope that if I just keep at it, eventually it will. Sure it will, but along the way it's going to grind you to in, like to paste. I had this relationship with Blue Sky. I love Blue Sky. I think it's potentially great, except, you know, it's got a lot of things on it I don't particularly like. It's a little racist. It's got a lot of like really aggressive, um, uncomfortable levels of sexuality. It's, it's not about sex positivity so much as it is, hey, look at all the different ways we can draw big dicks. And there's a time and place for that, but it also has that same sort of attitude like a teenager learning how to swear. Like, oh, no one's around, so I'll just curse a lot. I get it. I curse a lot all the time, but I'm not doing it just to do it. I'm doing it because I'm expressing something else. And I think that like that was so prevalent between that and the, the, the grotesque way like people have to ask for money to survive because capitalism is murdering every single one of us. Uh, because of that, uh, it became really uncomfortable to sit there because I don't have the means to help these people. I would love to, I'd help every single one of them. But I can't because I can barely help myself. So I had to pull back from Blue Sky because although, yes, those people are really nice. And it's so nice of them to show pictures of their dogs or recipes for tacos or anything else. It's also a lot of other stuff coming at my face at a time and a position where I just can't engage with it the way I should. So I didn't use it so much. And I didn't feel like I really fit in there. I was a little bit too, I wasn't, I felt special enough. I was just kind of boring. I didn't have a lot of big stuff going on. It was just me and who no one wants to hear about. Hey, so I was, you know, over here at a food co-op or something. I, I wasn't exciting enough. So I pulled back and I'm happier focusing where I'm focusing. Patreon, Discord, Substack, stuff like that. Focus on where your strength is. You will be rewarded for it. Yeah, sure, check in on the other stuff. But don't feel like you have to drag it along behind you in order to make it work. Good question. And lastly, question 13. How can I write when I'm so depressed? Now, you don't know this, but I am currently uh, performing this chat, recording, streaming this, whatever you want to call it, with a sun lamp blasting me in the face because I am miserable. Violate terms of service level miserable today. Have been longer than this morning. It's a thing. I feel it. When you're depressed, the degree doesn't really matter, though I find a lot of people really want to express the degree. It hurts. As somebody currently hurting, I get it. It hurts. 
And I'm sorry we're all hurting. It sucks. It really does. There's a number of reasons why. There's a number of situations I wish were different for all of us as to the why we're that way. And I know it can feel, because I'm thinking about immediately like finishing this up and then immediately just like going and sitting in a dark room and sobbing hysterically. There's a number of things we tell ourselves when we're like this about how bad it is and how we can't possibly be creative because, hey, we can barely like put on pants because I know pants suck, but it's also cold, so we should put on pants. We can barely manage that. How can we possibly write this book, whatever it is? Let, let me talk to you directly. This, this answer is going to kind of go to some places, so bear with me. No one is asking you to write the book today. No one is asking you to write the whole book right now. No one is asking you or demanding you that you write the next bestseller that's ever sold best anywhere. I personally am just asking you to write. It doesn't need to be good. It doesn't need to be flawless. It doesn't even need to be the finished product. You can delete it next week. But you do need to keep writing. You do need to keep stoking that fire. Because sometimes when we feel as though the world is slowly suffocating us and everything hurts and we don't do anything right and we feel pain in every breath and every blink and every everything, we have to cling so hard to the stuff that we like. We might not feel like doing it, but that doesn't seem to unplug us from knowing on some intellectual level that we like this. I like streaming. I like podcasting. I like watching TV and movies and stuff and talking about it. Though it feels like a Herculean effort to do that some days. Because I start worrying about the response. I start worrying about the views and the clicks and the subscribers and the money. And then I don't want to do it. But I still got to do it. Not only because I promised this thing would be done, but because if I don't do it, I'm just sitting here feeling bad. But I know that for the 43 or 46 minutes that I go watch Daredevil, it's going to make me, it's going to give me 46 minutes of something good. And I could use that today. So here I am doing work while depressed for the hour and 25 ish, 20, I'm sorry, 28 minutes that I've been recording. This is the best I felt all day. And hopefully it persists. No one's asking you that you write something perfect. I'm asking you that you just keep stoking the fire because sometimes when it's cold and dark and bleak, sometimes that fire is the only light we have. And we can sit in the dark if you want to sit in the dark. I'm down for that. I will hang out in the dark as much as you want. But there is some value in lighting a fire and there is some value in having some light even if you feel like you don't deserve it, even if you feel like it's wasted because it's not the best fire that's ever fired, if we're following my metaphor forward, you still get to have it. You're still good enough for that. You still deserve that. Even if you feel like you don't deserve anything else, you still deserve to be creative. You still deserve to feel good about something, whether it's a hand down your pants or words on a page or something on your screen or you know food in your face. You still get to feel good 
You're still allowed to do that. Even if everything in existence is telling at you that you're not good enough. You are always good enough for something that helps you get through the day. Always. Period. You have to be. Because otherwise, not only would you, you know, not have days to go through, but it would have been, it would, it would have been over long ago. Yet here you are listening to this. So it's not over yet. That's what I keep telling myself. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I guess we'll find out later. But for right now, just write a little. Stoke the fire. Five words. Five words. Five words. Two words. One word. Any words. Any non-zero number. Any positive non-zero number. Just do it not because, oh my God, there's an expectation it has to be done. Not because, oh my God, if I don't do it, it'll, it'll be a month before I do it again. Do it because the fire needs fuel. Because it's one word. Because, and I've seen this with people because I've seen this with me too. I will talk about how I don't feel like recording. I don't feel like talking into a microphone. But the amount of excuse and bullshit I give about why I can't is roughly the same amount of time and roughly the same amount of talking I would do if I just turned the microphone on. So clearly, I'm not opposed to talking. I just, I feel feelings. That's okay. But feel the fire. Because if it gets darker later, you're going to want that fire. You're going to want to know that something went right today. You're going to want to know that something was good today. And even if it's just one more word, it's great. It's what you need. I personally think more than one would be ideal. Aim for two or more. But hey, if that one word is what I get, then that one word is what we get. Don't don't give up. Don't give up on your creativity. You can give up on a lot of other stuff. But do not let your creativity be one of the things that goes first. If things are going to go, let it be one of the things that goes last. Because it is the most personal to you. It matters. It really matters. It's just what I think. Maybe you think differently. Let me know down in the comments below, YouTube people. We'll see. Are there any other questions? Otherwise, we'll get out of here. So I use a program called Ecamm. Um, the link for that is in the YouTube description. It's awesome. If you have a Mac, it is by far the best, better than OBS, better than anything, uh, production studio for video. But in its newest version, when it shows comments for things, it no longer auto-scrolls to the bottom. So bear with me if I have to, if there's a pause between me seeing a thing and you saying a thing, because I got to like lean over here and scroll it myself. It was a deep answer. Yeah, I know. I, I feel deep because I'm in a hole and it sucks. So might as well just give deep answers if I'm down in this deep hole. Thank you for noticing. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Other questions? Other things? I'm still really irritated that this morning uh, so I asked somebody how they were doing and it turned into an argument. Like that really bugs me. 
hate when things like that happen. Drives me nuts. But some days are just like that, right? <sighs> Questions? Else we will just keep moving. Get our way out of here. Hit that outro. Thanks for, you know, I'm glad to be me. I've thought about being somebody else. I thought about putting on some persona to do work, not just today, but just in general. And uh, it's real hard. It's real weird. I can't think of, how do I say this? Two plus decades ago, I had a persona. It is one of the great black mark and shames of my life. It was a gimmicky name in a gimmicky time. And I used it as a shield to say truly awful things. I wasn't me. I was this character. This character online who got attention for saying outrageous, terrible things. And I felt justified in my anger because it wasn't always my anger. It was this character's anger. But I was also angry because nobody was listening to me. Because I was privileged and coming from a place of privilege and not recognizing the impact of my shit on other people. And I wasn't dealing with my shit. And when I, when I lost that job and I, I, I forcibly detached, amputated all that stuff from me, yanked the parasites off, I realized I had given so much of myself to that other persona. I didn't really know who I was. I felt like that for 20 years. And only in the last handful of years, have I really started to sort out who I am? And I know that for people along the way, that really sucks because they'll tell me like eight years ago, this happened. O okay. I, I'm sure it did. You've got a very clear memory of it, but I'm not that person from eight years ago. And part of that's real fuzzy to me. So I got to take your word for it. It's hard letting that go. And it's hard to be me. Uh, not just because I'm so difficult or anything. It's just, it's hard to be authentic, especially in an age and an era and on a platform where like I'm doing this so that I don't have to dive into a dumpster behind a grocery store for food tomorrow. So um, yeah, it's kind of hard to sit here and even say that because that's a thing. But yeah, it's um, be careful with your personas. It's, I think that's the reason why I have problems with pen names. Um, I think there's, I, I, I always have this sort of like intense reaction. To, oh, you have a pen name. Ah, because I think you should own your shit. I think you should own your words. I think you should not be afraid to put your own name on like the, the book where those two characters put their mouths on each other's bodies. I think, you know, you should own the, the, I think you should say very proudly that you wrote the story where like the, you know, the seven kids from the small town fight the alien invasion. I think you should be proud of that. I don't think you should hide from it. That's a really interesting thought. I'm probably going to have to think about that for a podcast at some point. But yeah, I'm me. I'm doing my best. Shall we get out of here? Have I rambled enough? Yeah. Yeah, let's hit that outro.
thank you all for being here. Thanks for letting me go off. Thanks for letting me talk about all this stuff. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your questions. They were deep. And thanks for letting me answer. I hope they were equally deep. Uh, happy Halloween. This is your jam. I hope you get candy you want and if you're one of those people who's just like down to look at you know attractive people in attractive costumes i hope you find plenty of very sexy people of all flavors and persuasion um because you deserve good stuff we all do how how nice that is all power to all people no matter who you are no matter where you are please know that i love you i want you to do well i hope you're doing well i hope you try don't forget to ask questions if you need some help everybody deserves that Everybody deserves that chance. The next time I'm here, next time I'm in your eyes and in your ears, will be next week. Uh, the specifics of which I don't entirely know. Um, I know there's no chat next Tuesday, but there I might just move the chat to later in the week. I'm getting my COVID booster. Go get your COVID booster, you guys. Science is real. But uh, I know Tuesday the office is closed because I'm getting a shot in the arm. So maybe... Uh, maybe we'll do it Wednesday in the middle of the day I don't know we'll figure it out stay tuned to the newsletter johnhelpsyourwriter.com for more of those details for now though I think I've rambled at you enough Uh, I would love to get out of here thanks for being here thanks for you know everything you guys are saved my life today I really appreciate it I'll talk to you soon see ya